Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to God. If you're ever in the Madison area, we'd love for you to stop by and study the Bible with us on Sundays at 5 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you have questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, you can find us online at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast as well as our sermons podcast, Madison Church of Christ Sermons. Thanks again for stopping by. I hope this study is a blessing to you. Tonight, Andrew Kingsley comes to us from the University Church of Christ, where he's been the campus minister now for uh, over five years. Andrew and I go back a few years. I really don't know how long, but as I was leaving Faulkner, he was coming in. Uh, He worked with Andrew Whitson there as a a campus ministry intern for a few years, so I look forward to hopefully getting some dirt on Mr. Whitson. Okay, good. We got a guarantee on that. We're all excited for that. Uh, Andrew is with us tonight. His topic is current distress and future hope uh, coming from Jeremiah. He and his wife, Cana, uh, have been married for, did you say seven years, I believe it was? Almost eight. You passed the test. That's right. I knew that. I was just checking. Uh, They have three wonderful kids, Kendall, Charlie, and Judson. And Andrew actually just started teaching, will be teaching freshman Bible classes at Faulkner this year as well. So excited to have him with us all the way from Montgomery. Well, good evening. It is a pleasure to be here with you tonight at the Madison Church of Christ. I did get to spend three years working with Itzen as his intern when he was the college minister at university. I will not tell any stories about Andrew because I'm 90% sure he has more about me. So we're just going to keep that relationship as peaceful, as peaceful as we can. I think that's in my best interest. Uh, but I am very glad to be here with you tonight. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to have an afternoon with Jason. We've gotten to hang out. And come to think of it, Jason, I cannot, I don't know how far we go back. It seems like a long time, though. Not in a bad way, in a good way. Uh, but we really, at university, we really appreciate the Madison Church of Christ up here. We've got a lot of connections with you guys. And uh, particularly on a personal note, I know going through the difficulties that COVID brought to ministry, uh, you guys were certainly a great example for us, particularly Jason, and I think a lot of the work that he was doing uh, really serves to help us and really inform how we moved forward during the pandemic. So I am truly thankful for this church, for the people here, certainly for your ministers. Uh, so when I say I'm really happy to be here tonight, uh, I'm not just saying that. I uh, actually mean it. Not that anyone would just say it, right? Uh, but certainly happy to be with you tonight. I'm glad that Jason mentioned something about Faulkner, and he did so pretty much because I asked him to. But I'm glad he did anyway. I do want to give you a quick commercial for Faulkner, but don't worry, it's not a long one because it is an unpaid commercial. They have not paid me to talk about this. But I am very excited and pretty invested in this as a college minister on campus. They are offering free tuition for Bible majors this fall. So that means you can go to college for free. All you got to do is pay to eat and sleep, and you got to pay to do that anywhere. And my prayer is that Faulkner is going to have an influx of young men and women who are zealous about their faith in Christ and who are very interested in their college years, not just on preparing for a career, but who are interested in seeing how they can use their career to serve God better. So I hope that uh, if you're maybe about to go into college or you've got a couple years left or if you know somebody who is, uh, please share that news with them. I'm, I'm very excited about it and hoping that it will be a huge blessing to our community in Montgomery. 
But we didn't come to talk about that tonight. Uh, we're here to talk about a chapter in Jeremiah. So if you've got a Bible, if you'll go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to start and take a look at verse 11, which is, I'm sure, a verse that maybe you have committed to memory. Maybe you've got it hanging in your house. And having spent about 10 years now in youth and then college ministry, you go to a lot of graduations. And you go to a lot of graduation dinners and banquets and ceremonies that are entirely too long uh, for what they are. But you go to a lot of graduations, and what you get as a senior quote, or you know, as a favorite Bible verse at a Christian school, Jeremiah 29, 11. It comes up all the time, and rightfully so, because the verse gives us a lot of hope. And if you guys don't mind clicking to the next slide for me up there, I don't think I have a clicker down here anywhere, so I'm going to rely on you guys. But don't worry, there's not many slides, so it should be easy. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And if we are in any particular time in our life where maybe some element of the future is uncertain, whatever that might be, and per, obviously coming out of high school or college or maybe moving careers, something where there's a big life change, things are really about to change, but you don't know what the details are going to be. And if you're a planner kind of person, maybe this is something that really gives you a lot of peace and a lot of confidence. And we will come to this verse, and essentially we treat it as if, you know what, I don't know what's coming ahead. Or maybe we're in a different situation where we have missed out on an opportunity that meant a lot to us. And we'll come to this passage and we'll say, well, you know what, God's got something better in store. for Maybe I missed that job. Maybe I didn't get accepted into that school. Maybe uh, that person that I have been thinking about, thank you very much, Jason, uh, that person that I've been thinking so much about uh, that I was hoping we were going to get married, it didn't work out, but you know what? God's going to give me something better eventually if I can just wait and be patient long enough. And I'm not going to tell you tonight that God has no plans for us to be happy <laughs> or that God does not plan, in many cases, something better that if we had a better view of our situation, that God certainly has a better plan for us and things are going to work out better than we think they will. And certainly I think Proverbs is a testament to that, right? It tells you that righteous living is going to result in some good things in the here and now. That's the general rule of the book of Proverbs. But sometimes what I get worried about with this passage is that we leave it there. We don't take it any further. So what I'm going to argue tonight, or not necessarily that, I just think what we're going to see from a study of this chapter, particularly the first 14 verses tonight, I think we're going to see that our hope in God is so much greater, and when we read this passage, and if we carry this idea into it that, you know what, that better job is waiting, or this better family situation is waiting, or whatever it might be is waiting if I can just hang on because God's plan is to fix my problem in the here and now. If we limit it to that, then we are missing out on the full scope and the height and the depth of the promises that God has actually made to us. So yes, when we look at this passage, we see promise for a future hope. But we'll see in the context there's also a very real present distress. Yes, it is the promise of a future hope. 
But it also comes with a required promise in the verses that follow, verse 11. So if you'll notice here at the very beginning of the verse, this word for, obviously we're connecting to something that's been said before this. And if you're skimming through your Bible, if you're looking at it in your lap right now, you'll back up to the verses before this one all the way up to verse 6. They all have some kind of conjunction like for, which means you've got to read what comes before it if you want to know what's going on in verse 11. So just to be safe, how about we just go ahead and back all the way up to verse 1 and see what we can learn about the promise that's made in Jeremiah 29. 11. So let's take a look and start reading in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem, and the letter was sent by the hand of of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we've read a lot of names here, a lot of context, and if you know what's happening in the historical situation here, you've had exiles who have left the city of Jerusalem. This is about the time of the second group that goes. So if you try to remember some stuff from the fall of Jerusalem, the bottom line here is we're about eight years eight years removed from the initial group of exiles leaving Jerusalem. Here's what that means. This is a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah from Jerusalem to those who have been in exile for about eight years. Now I want you to imagine just a little bit the life of a Jewish person in this time period who's been exiled from the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is their home. And you think about where home is for you. Maybe that's always been here, or maybe that was somewhere else and you've since moved here and I got the opportunity to meet a lot of folks tonight. We're all swapping the stories about where we're from and where home is. It's one thing to move away, to be with family somewhere from the geographical place that's home. It's another thing entirely to be exiled from a place that is wrapped up in who you are as a person. Here's why Jerusalem is wrapped up in who you are as a person if you're a Jew living in this time period. You know what's in Jerusalem that's so important? And I know we all know it. The temple. The temple's in Jerusalem. And what dwells with, why is the temple such a big deal? Well, it's because the presence of God himself dwells within the temple in a very special kind of way. So the idea is where does God live? Well, God lives on the Temple Mount, he lives within the Holy of Holies. And as a matter of fact, that particular area of space is so holy because God dwells there that only one of us can go in, the high priest, and he can only go in once a year. So they are tied to the city of Jerusalem as they are tied to God himself. So as they are exiled from the city, this is not just you being told today that, hey, you have to move out of your home city because, you know, Babylon's going to come in and you guys got to move. And this is now Babylonian territory. You're going to go where you tell you to go. It's not just a moving of geographical sorts here. This is tied up in your relationship to God as a Jewish person. So if you don't think being sent into exile as a Jewish person, completely changes your world, 
then we need to reevaluate what exactly is going on in the context here. So these Jewish people have been in exile for eight years. This kind of exile for eight years. And here comes a letter from the prophet of God. Now, I, obviously, I don't know everybody personally here tonight. But if you've been through a time in your life where maybe it's your touch point, for this kind of exile and you're thinking about a really difficult season in your life, can you imagine getting a letter from the prophet of God? wonder what we might expect that letter to say. No, maybe we expect it to begin with, look, I know things are really bad right now and, you know, there are things that happen. It's a fallen world. God's got plans for you. He's going to fix all these things that are wrong with your professional life, with your family life, with these things and and you're going to have a life that's just filled with, with happiness from now on. That's what we're going to want to read. Let's take a look at what the letter says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease, but instead seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find yours. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams that they're dreaming. For it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So as we get to verse 11, and we read, For I know the plans that I have for you. Notice that the promise does not just include a present distress as sheer happenstance and an unfortunate set of circumstances. Notice how the people wound up in their captivity. Do so you see, the promise here, it doesn't just include a present distress. It is built upon the present distress. And I think what's really difficult for us to wrestle with in this passage is the fact that God is the one who has sent them into their exile. So this life-changing experience for these Jews comes as a part of the plan of God. And I think as you read through the book of Job and we wrestle with this idea of how can God's plan include things that are not comfortable for me? Or how can God's plan include me missing out on this thing that I really genuinely need. It's not a desire. Maybe it is a desire, but it's more than that. It is a genuine need that I need maybe even for just plain old survival. I think it is difficult for us to wrestle with the idea that... Now, it's easy to think about the idea that, you know, God has plans for... All, you know, these, as we read in Jeremiah 29, 11, these plans for a future and hope, it is much more difficult 
for us to accept the fact that something might be a part of God's plan that does not include the promotion or that thing that we have wanted, that maybe we have even spent time, so much time, praying for. So what, what do we say to that, though? What do we say about a God who cares for his people? And we know the passages about God never leaving us or forsaking us. Those promises were originally made to these exact people. What do we say about the fact that maybe some present distress can be within God's plan? How do we respond to that? And as I think about this, my mind is drawn to a few places. First, it is drawn to Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. If you're familiar with the parable of the sower, this is a parable about how different people receive the gospel. So and that is compared to a man who go out, goes out to spread some seed, and the seed represents the gospel, and the seed falls on some ground that is fertile ground, it's good ground. These are people who are honest-hearted and willing to listen and accept the gospel. And all the other types of ground, well, the seed can't grow because the ground is not suitable for seed to grow in it. And one of those groups is rocky soil. The seed falls among some rocky soil. And you, know, you remember what happens to the seeds in the rocky soil, I'm guessing. Remember when the sun comes out, it scorches them and they don't, their roots don't go deep enough. And so the plants are scorched. And I don't know how many of you here are, are farmers or gardeners or have any kind of background in that. And I'm not much of a gardener. But I do know that if your plants don't have enough time to take enough root to get moisture out of the ground, then when the heat of the summer comes, especially in Montgomery, Alabama, which it's been as hot as it's been all year, the last two days, it's way too hot down there, but that's another discussion. The plants are not going to make it because their roots haven't made it far enough down. Here's an interesting distinction here. And this is certainly not the point of the parable, but I do think it's an observation worth making. The difference between those plants that are scorched by the sun and the plants that continue to grow and bear fruit is not the fact that they are sitting in the sun. They face the same heat. They face the same adversity. One group is prepared, and another group is not. And if you can boil down our discussion to any one thought tonight, I think, I think this is where it would be. You see, the plants that grow and produce fruit don't do it just because they have the luxury of being in the shade and because no heat ever comes their way. No, they have the same heat. But something about the faith of these people or the, their willingness to receive the gospel, it gives them roots. So what I'm going to say tonight is that the way we accept diversity or the way that we accept adversity, rather, the way that we accept these problems coming to us in our life of faith and still hang on to a God who says, I have a plan for you for a future and for a hope. Well, when something bad happens to us, you've only got a few options, right? If we believe that God has planned for our success in life and for our health in life, when something terrible happens to us, we have a very limited set of options. We can either decide, well, you know what? Maybe this God is not quite as good as I have heard. Maybe he wants to be, but maybe he's not as good, or maybe, maybe he's just not as powerful as I thought he was. Maybe he can or maybe we say, well, this kind of God is not existing in my life. 
this kind of God cannot exist. I don't think it's any surprise why severe trials are one of the main reasons that we lose faith. But I don't think that it is a question of who believes stronger than someone else. I do not think it is a test of sheer willpower. I don't think that's a scriptural idea. No, I don't think it's the strength of our faith. I think it is the substance of our faith, meaning what kind of God are we placing our faith in? Do we have our faith in a kind of God that we believe may have distress, a present distress as a part of his plan, but a God who will deliver us from that anyway? Are we like Peter will write about in his letters? Are we surprised by the fiery trials when they come upon us? As if something out of the ordinary were happening to us? Is it, does it seem to be out of step? Are we not expecting any sort of adversity in our life as followers of God? Or are we expecting that God is obligated to hold up his end of the deal of giving us peace, success, wealth, family, all these things that we need for prosperity? And as soon as God allows something to take that away from us, we'll find something else that will. And I think this is the struggle of the ancient Israelites when they leave Egypt, is it not? You remember their complaint when they leave. Did you bring us out here into the desert so that we can starve, so that we can die of thirst? Something is not met, and so now they're immediately ready to leave God and to go to something else. And in fact, several times they're willing to go back to Egypt. They would rather be enslaved and have their male children taken by Pharaoh and cast into the Nile than depend upon this God who's not meeting their needs on their timetable and in the ways they expected God to do it. Now again, please do not hear me say that I think God has no plans for us to have any sort of enjoyment or happiness in life. He certainly does. He certainly does. But thanks be to God that his plans for us exceed and go beyond so much more than the things we might classify as earthly treasures. So yes, we cannot miss in Jeremiah 29, 11, the present distress. If you will, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to take a look at something that Paul shows us. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul certainly was in distress. And we can read, starting in verse 7, he's talking about these revelations that he's had, these visions that he's had. And in verse 7 he says, "...to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations." So those visions that we were talking about. "...a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited." Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So let's pause before we get into the response here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, who aside from Jesus himself, like there's not been a singular person 
a singular person that has done more to advance Christianity on the face of the planet than the Apostle Paul. This guy, this Apostle Paul, has a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it was, and it's pretty interesting to guess what it might have been. It could have been some sort of physical deformity. It could have been something with his vision. There's no telling what it could have been, honestly. But that's not as important as the fact that whatever it was, it bothered Paul enough. He refers to it as a thorn. It is something that is continually painful. Painful for Paul. And he begs God to take it away from him. And here's the danger. If we approach this situation, not just with Paul, but with ourselves and our own lives, we say, well, well, I know the plans that God has for me. Plans for welfare and not for harm. Plans for a future and for a hope. So the thorn is going to be gone. He's going to take the thorn away. And again, I think we're setting ourselves up for the problems of losing faith in God altogether. But do you remember what the response is from Jesus here? He does not say, you got it, Paul. I know this is a thorn in your side. I know this is a real problem for you. This is not just a desire you have. This is, this is a need of yours. And now let me take, take that away from you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, you already have what you need. You already have everything you need. And I wonder... As we approach the situations in our life that we might classify as a thorn, are we really convicted deep down that the grace of God is sufficient? And that is what we need. Or do we need the grace of God and this? Yes, God has been gracious to me, he has given me eternal life. That is, he's given me meaning. He has given me purpose in life. That's great. It consumes everything I am. Yeah, but also I need this job. No, no, no. Yeah, Christ is sufficient for me. He is all things to me, but you don't understand. I really need to be married to that person. Or I need this illness taken away from me. Or do we believe that no matter what lies ahead of me, the grace of God is sufficient for me. And I will tell you that the grace of God is an infinitely better promise than whatever earthly things we might desire and or actually need. And that gets us to the future hope. Of 2911. So, what kind of hope? What was it? Well, for the people of Israel, this is a message of profound comfort, right? This is God saying, I'm going to bring you back. And we're going to read this. Actually, you can read it right there in verse 10. So, let's go back to Jeremiah 2911, or excuse me, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and I will bring you back to this place. So they do get a promise that you are coming back. There is a future hope coming. We can't miss out on the fact that he says, though, after 70 years. In other words, some of you 
are not going to see these plans come to fruition. Some of you will die in exile. And we will read why in just a second. But as we reflect upon the great hope that we have today and the reason why the grace of God can be sufficient for us, I think lies in short form in Romans chapter 8. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 8. And let's see what Paul has to say about present distress and future hope. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans 8, let's begin verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now what do we think Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, is saying when he says the sufferings of the present time aren't worth comparing to the glory revealed to us? Does he mean, hey, look, what's happening to you right now? Yeah, it's not that bad. It's no big deal. Just, you know, brush it off. You're cool. Don't worry about it. No, the sufferings of the present age in this particular time in history for Christians are very severe. People are dying. People are losing their lives for their faith. So Paul is not saying, hey, look, you know what's happening to you? Eh, it's not that big a deal anyway. Just don't worry about it. No, really terrible things are happening to these people. And Paul says, these awful, horrible things that are happening to us now falls so far short of the glory that is ahead of us that there's no, you cannot, you cannot compare those two things. Well, what do you mean by that? Let's keep reading. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, and watch this next part, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes and what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul defines here, this future glory for us as the redemption of our bodies in verse 23. So what he's talking about here is the resurrection to eternal life. He's saying we, yes, we do have present sufferings and we do have present distress, but there is a glory waiting on us. There is a glory ahead of all of us and this is the great hope of Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, look, if Jesus has not been risen from the grave, then we of all people are most to be pitied because this grace of God that gives us eternal life, it's not there. So if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, we're not going to either. The great hope of Christianity is the resurrection to eternal life with God. And in Romans 8, in the same passage, we read a passage that a lot like Jeremiah 29, 11, for all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. So what do we say when things turn out bad? We're either prolonging, maybe the good is coming later, 
What happens when our sick family member does not recover? And we come to a passage, all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord. What, what kind of faith do we have? You see where the issue here is not how strong, or maybe how strong is that willpower. It's not the strength. It is the substance. It is what kind of God do I really believe that I serve? What kind of promises do I believe that God really has for me? And Paul's going to continue in this passage and in verse 31. What then can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, us, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I'm sure, I'm confident, I have an assurance. It's not just, you know, I kind of hope that this is out there, I have the confident expectation that even death itself, neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us, can separate you, can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, for Paul, when he says all things work out together for good for those who love the Lord, he is telling you that even in death you conquer through the grace of God. God has a plan for all of us. He has a plan to give us all eternal life. So when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. He is absolutely not saying to Paul, toughen up, buddy. Things are going to be okay. He says, the grace that I have given to you is enough for you. It is sufficient for the needs that you really have that you might not even recognize or actually your deepest needs. It is sufficient. It is able to meet the needs that you really have. And here in Romans 8, we're going to find out that this grace of God, that's, as you've moved through Romans, by this point we know that the only way we have access to the salvation of God is by grace through faith. It's extended as a gift, and that's in short form in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But we know it's not a result of works. We know it is the result of the gift of of God, the free gift of grace that is obtained through an active, obedient type of faith, and it leads us to eternal life. As Paul words it in Romans 8, 23, the redemption of your bodies. So here's what this means. This means that even if the present distress leads to my death, if the present distress leads to my death, in no way have the promises of God been nullified. He does have plans for me. 
plans for welfare. He does have a future plan for me. It might not include the earthly things that I want and then even the earthly things that I need. But you know what? My faith in God is not contingent upon the fact that he will give me the things that I think that I need. My great hope in Christianity is not that God will give me a great job and that God will make my life very cozy and that God will give me a lot of money where I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not my hope in God. And that's not the hope that the New Testament presents for God. No, thanks be to God that the hope that we have in him is so much deeper. Matthew chapter 6, it is something that will not fade away. The treasures of earth, well, moth and rust will eventually destroy, or a thief will break in and steal, but it's temporary. Hmm, But the treasures of heaven, they're not subject to corrosion. Moth and rust will not destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. We have to be very careful about the hopes that we are placing in God, where our hope is, wherever we decide to put that treasure, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. So a challenging question from Jeremiah 29, 11. As I reflect upon what I believe God has planned for me, does my heart lie more in the things of earth Or is my heart tied to the things of heaven? Yes, there is a future hope. And it is a future hope. It is a resurrection to eternal life that overcomes the worst of the possible present distresses that we might face. And this is why James can tell his readers in chapter 1 that you can consider it all joy when the fiery trial, when the trials come upon you. Consider it all joy when you face these exact types of situations that might lead us away from God. James says, no, no, no. These situations push you closer to God. And I don't think it is any coincidence that Jesus tells Paul in My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Our trials are an opportunity for us to lean upon the strength of God rather than our own strength. So it is a present distress, future hope. There's also a required promise here. So let's go back to the text in Jeremiah 29. Let's keep reading. In verse 12. Actually, let's back up to verse 11 to get this in context, and we've got about four minutes left. So hang in there. We're almost done, I promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from the place which I sent you in exile. Now notice what's happening here. And if we remember why the people are in captivity in the first place, 
God is saying, in the day that you call upon me, it's the day that you will be delivered. You see, the lasting fidelity of the Israelite people was quite a problem for them. And because of their infidelity to God, God assigned for them these 70 years in captivity. But he tells them, at the end of these 70 years, you will return to me. You will return to me, and I will restore you. You will return when you renew your side of the covenant. When you renew your covenant relationship with me, you will return. And we read this all through the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 3, he is begging with the people to repent and come back to God. God is warning them through Jeremiah. He says, if you do not change, then I'm going to send you away. Babylon is going to come in and be victorious. But if you will repent, if you will just acknowledge your guilt, is the phrase that he uses in chapter 3, if you will only acknowledge your guilt and return to me. But they won't. And so tonight, as we reflect upon maybe our present distress, or at least the potential of a present distress, and as we reflect upon that future hope, I wonder how we will reflect upon the required promise to turn to God. Where there is refusal to repent and seek God, there can be no hope of future deliverance. Where there is refusal to repent and seek God, there can be no hope of future deliverance. To claim the promises from God, we must first make the promise of love and devotion to Him. We can illustrate this right here in Jeremiah as we close. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44, we find a striking contrast to what we've been reading, especially what we read in verse 11 of the chapter we've been discussing tonight. But as we go to Jeremiah 44, let's read verse 27 together. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there's an end of them. This is probably not a verse that any of us have hanging on our walls at our house. This is not a verse that I've ever heard recited as a favorite verse at a graduation. Uh, my plans for them are destruction. Like, we don't, <laughs> we don't want to hang this up in our houses for obvious reasons. So what's the difference? These are all people of Israel. Why would God say for some of the people of Israel, I know I have the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil. And he says to these people, just a few chapters later, you know what, my plans, I am watching over them for disaster and specifically not for good. The difference is not that God is somehow capricious and careless. The difference is always the response of humanity to a gracious and loving God. And that same decision rests upon every last one of our shoulders as well. What will be our response to a gracious and loving God? Jeremiah begs us, if we will turn and repent, then we have this future hope. But where there is no repentance and where there is no willingness to seek God, there can be no promise of future deliverance. So what can we leave here? 
tonight with. Again, don't mishear me to say that uh, God has no plans for us to be happy. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God has plans for us to live a life that is full of the things that are actually made up of real life, not just cheap imitations, shallow imitations. He's given us the opportunity to things that truly make up what real life is, and my prayer for all of us is that we will seek those things above everything else. Let's close with a prayer. God, we come to you tonight, and Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together and to study your word. God, we are thankful beyond the ways that we know how to express that you have blessed us with the written word, that you have given us the word that has come from you through these men that have written the scriptures, and we're so thankful tonight that we have the opportunity to open up the words of life and to learn from them. And not just to learn facts and trivia and knowledge, but to learn things that can shape who we are. And God, we're so thankful for the hope that you have given to us. And it is that hope that pulls us through the darkest times of our lives. And I pray that tonight for any of us who are here in the middle of a present distress, I pray that you will give, I pray that you will give us hope. And I pray that you will give us resolve, and I pray that you will remind us, Lord, remind us of the great hope that we have in you. And I pray that we can be renewed and encouraged tonight by the simple fact that even death itself cannot separate us from you because we know that your son has overcome death so that we might be able to do the same. And it is that great hope upon which we have, we have placed everything. And God, we're so thankful for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.